This episode is brought to you by Thorn, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorn is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, 
Francisco Morales. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome back onto the show nurse anesthetist, altruist, and model Mohammed Dean. So we discuss a host of topics from his perception living in Chicago of the last couple of years, his volunteer work, his COVID experience in Norway, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library for you, planet Earth. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I welcome back Mohammed Dean. Enjoy. Well, Mohammed, I want to firstly welcome you back to the Behind the Shield podcast. And secondly, thank you for not being in a restaurant in this second conversation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Look, man, to my defense, um, I think I was either getting out of a 24-hour call shift and we had scheduled it and I did not want to reschedule. I don't remember the, the terms, but I was stuck in San Francisco, but I was working at SF General at the time. Um, and I said, no, I, you know, I'm punctual and in anesthesia, you are kind of, uh, all about numbers. So there was no way I was going to miss it. So I found the nearest restaurant that had Wi-Fi, and I just plugged in and sure enough, if you listen to our first podcast, there's nothing but plates and spoons <laughs> and the dishwasher just bumping back there. But it was so good it was though. You could, out. you could hear everything. It just added a, a different, you know, it was definitely an ambiance in the back and people sounded like they were having a lot of, you know, delicious foods and drinks. <laughs> it was, it was, it was a good, t you know what, it, what's great. What's more crazy about that is that was five or six years ago. I want to say we did. I think I just looked it up. You were like a hundred episode 131, I think. So was it 31 or 107? One, one I, or the I other. I think it was. Let me, let me I'll look up what we're talking, but, um, so that would have made it about four, four and a half years ago, I believe, because now I knock out a hundred a year, which is okay. you know, insane. But yeah, uh, episode 131 for people listening. 131, that's a good number. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, man. Oh, God. So much has happened between now and then. Well, I'm excited because, I mean, as we touched on before, I see a lot of people. I, I love to share the, the positive stories on social media i mean I, I reshare quite a bit people actually told me one of the people that sponsors the show like you need to do more you know unique content i'm like no because i'm not very interesting but these stories are so i'm gonna share a lot of these as well um but you do a lot of great work and you don't put it on your social media so i'm really excited to kind of hear this journey you've been through the last four years or so since we chatted last before we do though we kind of um opened a discussion about Chicago specifically. I just had Steve Chikaderos on, who was a Chicago firefighter, uh, district chief, I believe, assistant district chief. He's also the man behind Chicago Fire. Um, this is, you know, your beloved home, somewhere that you've, you know, you adore. But 
we have seen the the national kind of viewers that some cities these last couple of years have found themselves improving and some cities have, have kind of found themselves deteriorating at the hands of certain policies and changes. So without loading the question, and I don't want to, you know, drive any political conversations because I hate that, but your observation of your beloved city, pros, cons, and some of the stories that you told me before that never made it to the news that need to be heard by this audience. Well, um, like any person in Chicago will tell you they probably have a love-hate relationship with it, with the city. There's a sense of pride that we have in watching the Chicago Bears lose year after <laughs> year after year. Yet we're still Bears fans reliving 1985 Super Bowl. There's another sense of pride when we talk about the Chicago Bulls and the magical years Michael Jordan has brought about. And then, you know, for the Cubs fans on the north side, it was 100 years, and then there was a World Series win, and so on. Every Chicagoan is, uh, at least every Chicagoan that I meet, there's a love and a hate. The love comes from where you come from, the grind nose, the blue-collarness that the cities kept um, compared to other major cities in the States, and you know, just the overall people. We grind through the winters. We grind through hard times. You know, we've grinded through the Chicago fire from back in the day and so on. The hate obviously comes from like everybody, the increased taxes of a big city that are just killing the people. Um, some of the violence and crime that unfortunately has arisen since the COVID days. We won't go into that. And some of the unfortunate separation that the um, city has now found itself in when it comes to people versus law enforcement, fire and people, you know, different groups, different ethnic groups and so on. And it's sad to see because the Chicago I was born in, I was born 10 minutes away from here on the west side in the heart of the city, almost literally in the heart of what is zero and zero on the coordinates in UIC, not necessarily, but close to. And what makes me sad is as somebody now who works in healthcare, I see the beauty of it when I drive, I see the beauty of it uh, when I meet people. And then I see the ugly of it when people are shot in the streets and people are stabbed for senseless, almost absolutely no reason. I don't think any life is lost, should be lost for any reason. Um, and that's unfortunately the downside of what Chicago, um, to, some of, to some of the extent what Chicago has seen in, in the last couple of years. Now, with that being said, I do have to say, the city gets a bad rep nationally, but everybody that I talk to that, has said to me, are you from Chicago? I love Chicago. I very rarely hear people say, no knock on people from LA, no knock on people from New York, you know, but I very rarely people say, I visited Chicago, I disliked it. Because the food's great, the culture's great, the city's got theater and music and blues and jazz and the lake and um, the diversity in neighborhoods. 
So the city gets quite a bad rep when it comes to nationally. Certain politicians have said Chicago is X, Y, Z. But when you look at it per capita, it doesn't rank top five or sometimes even top 10 in murders per capita. But yet it has this almost Al Capone-like history that it can't get away from of the gangsters, the, you know, and so on. So Chicago's a love-hate, man. Um, look, I got friends who work in grassroots African-American neighborhoods, and I've affiliated with incredible clinics that are in the heart of the city on the West side that are doing amazing stuff on that end. And I have really, really good friends who are Chicago police officers. And I almost want to get them all on one table and say, let's just break bread over this really good Chicago food. So some, some commonality. And it's not that one is against the other. I think sometimes that there's so much pain that, and when you're in pain, what do you do? You scream. And when you scream, no words are let out and you want to be heard. But sometimes it's hard to understand you when you're just screaming. And I think there's a lot of screaming going on and not much listening. So I don't know, man. Sometimes I've spoken about Chicago to a group of people and they say to me, you should run for mayor one day. And I want nothing to do with <laughs> politics. I just want to put it out there. Yes. Do I consider myself well-spoken and well-rounded? Sure. But I do not want anything to do with the politics. If I can make my neighbor's day a little bit easier by shoveling their snow, if I can make my patient's day a little bit easier by delivering a very, very solid anesthetic that gets them through surgery without pain, that is me making a difference in my community. I've uh, painted and cleaned up gang graffiti. I've cooked for the homeless here in, in the city. I run a food and, uh, uh, well, it used to be a clothes and uh, toy drive. Now it's going to be kind of a food and toy drive. Um, I've been doing it since 2012. And we go to women and children's shelters. So I feel like there's a way for me to make my impact without really getting into the political realm as a person. Because at the end of the day, I think the people united is what it comes down to, right? So that's my long-winded answer about the city of Chicago. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I hope that somehow sums up 1% of my thought process on it. No, but you know what, mate? It's so important to hear that because you are an actual human being that is living in their community, that is a mentor in their community, that is doing something outside of themselves. And I think that represents a lot of people. I think there's a middle, I do think there's a middle group that can be swayed either way, that can be pulled into cell phones and social media and be made angry by certain quote-unquote leaders. And I use that term very, very loosely. Um, but I think inherently most people are good. You're you're certainly in that top kind of you know percentile where you're leading from the front. You know, you're out there doing good things. You're not as I said, filming yourself doing it the whole time so you can get likes and all the other BS. But um, I think it represents who we really are. And I think, I, I forget how, how they phrased it, but I heard people say many times now that when you are at that heightened alarm state, you physiologically lose the capacity to critically think. And I think, as you said, the perfect analogy of screaming, that is it. Whether it's a child screaming in pain or a baby screaming in fear, as soon as you're in that alarm state, you can't take a step back and go, wait a second. I actually love my neighbors and they're, you know, they're from both sides of the aisle and they're all these different colors and they, they love different types of people. But I'm being dragged by these extremists one way or the other 
And now all yeah. of a sudden we're behind two walls, like first, you know, World War One, we're in two ditches fighting over a field. So I think it's so important to hear normal people just say, how is it? And even with COVID, I was like, look, just tell me what you're seeing with your eyes. Are your hospitals overwhelmed? Are people dying in the streets? Or are you doing really well? Or is it in between? I'm not trying to load it. Just tell me what you're seeing. Because what we're seeing in our communities is not the same as what's being projected when someone has a certain agenda behind their story or their politics. You know, fear fear is a driving factor to everything. Uh, I think the two strongest emotions are fear and hope. That's why when I put out that film before my TED Talk, I titled it No Place Like Hope. I referenced that because we talk about Chicago and I'll piggyback on something that I said. Last winter, my car got stuck in about 16 inches of snow. It dumped 12 inches and another four. And the worst part was it was so windy that the wind took the snow from the rooftops onto the streets. So that day I had a cardiac case, really sick patient. Go and shoveled my car, it took me an hour. I woke up an hour early, shoveled my car, got it out, it gets stuck in the middle of the street. Now I'm panicking. My case is starting in about an hour. I'm in the middle of the street stuck. I live three miles away from this hospital. I'm stuck in the street. I said, you know what? I'm gonna pull back. Pulled back my car. What did I do when I first get in my car? I put my wallet and everything on the side. I start walking to take the bus. Had on a Chicago fire hat, had on my hospital badge, my pager and a plastic bag with my lunch. And I'm walking in the street because the the blocks were so heavy and snow that it was taking me longer and the streets were shoveled. Cars were grazing me, almost hitting me. And I'm like, I just gotta get to this hospital, but I'm not gonna wait for a bus. I'd much rather make progress in case a bus doesn't come. That's how I just think. First bus comes and passes me by. And I'm like, son of a, okay, I'm walking. Now I'm getting desperate. I started asking people, please show them my ID, show them my badge, my hat. Uh, guys, I work at a restaurant. People, get, get away from my car. Get away from my car. One guy, I almost think, I don't want to say what, almost pulled out something on me. And I was just like, please, just asking people, rolling down my windows. It's 6.30 in the morning, man. Second bus driver, I don't know why or how. I said, um, I didn't realize I didn't have my wallet. So I get on the bus and uh, I look, I'm like, oh man, I don't have my wallet. He's like, I can't let you on. And I'm like, you gotta be kidding me, man. I'm like, look, I work at the hospital. There's no, I don't, my phone's not connected to my credit card. I can't scan anything. My wallet's in my car. He's like, I can't let you on, camera's rolling. And I get it, the man was doing his job. Look, that's the other side. But, and, and this is at the time everybody was praising these healthcare heroes, you know? And what did I, like, healthcare heroes, healthcare heroes, where are we? <laughs> Treat me like one. By no means am I looking for it. I'm not looking for your donuts that you want to give me on a Monday morning. Just get me masks. You know what I mean? I'm not looking for that discount you're going to get me at the clothing store. I don't need that. But man, I need you now. Get me on this bus. I'm trying. That can be your dad that can be having this cardiac procedure. No, I'm back walking. I get desperate. I'm now I'm like at women. I didn't want to ask. Okay. I get it. I'm going to put myself in my sister's situation, put myself in my mother's situation. If a random guy can. So I said, no woman. 
I'm not going to random big men, trucks. Cool. Guys, I work at the hospital. My badge, the ho- by the way, the hospital I work at is like the number one or the number two, depends on who you ask on hospital in the city. Everybody knows it. I don't work at some small hospital that nobody knows. And it's lit- you can throw a rock and hit it. That's how big this hospital is. It's a thousand beds. It's very well known. They filmed the Chicago sh- show, Chicago Med there, you know, just to give you an idea. So nothing, man. Everybody get the hell away from my car. Get out of my car. Get- Finally, I get to the train station thinking, okay, cool. The train train's not working. Now I'm like in major panic mode. Luckily, the third bus driver didn't skip me, didn't let me go, finally let me on. I got to work, did the case. People are like, what were you thinking? I even forgot, I even forgot my hospital shoes. I, did, I worked that day with my snow boots on. Really? <laughs> yeah, man. So, but it just goes to show you what did fear do? There were carjackings happening in the city around that time. Lots of them. So many carjackings were happening that people were that paranoid that I was coming up to potentially jack their cars. You see the irony? You see like the love and hate that I'm talking about? I don't want any of our listeners to think that I'm one way or another. No, I'm literally telling you. Nobody wants, nobody can justify carjackings. They were happening. Who would love that in their city? Not me. I don't want to live in a city where potentially if I'm stopped at a red light or filling up gas, then my car is going to get robbed and I'm going to get jacked for it. So, so that was happening. And who suffered the patient? I mean, luckily, no, the patient did well, but the patient had to wait. This is an older patient that was not eating or drinking anything because we keep the patient's MPO, nothing by mouth before surgery. And it delayed everything. So that's, that's what I mean. If, if there's one story that can sum it up, it's truly this story. There was something going on in the city that was beyond anything that I would expect that can potentially happen to me at any moment. And everybody was viewing me as that person. Little did they know, no matter what proof I showed them, I'm holding a plastic bag of food, man. I have my, my pager was on me. My hospital ID my mom was on me. So wearing a Chicago fire hat, nothing, nothing. So that's, that's, you know, that's, if I can sum it up, it's that story will do, do it justice for me. Well, it's an interesting concept because it's kept children in their homes for decades now. Or if you, if you go out in the street, someone's going to snatch you up, you know, and think of all the kids that didn't get to play because of the fear of these, again, real threat, but there is a middle ground where you're able to mitigate it and, you know watch your children, have a community, for example, make sure there's adults around. Um, and then, you know, hitchhikers, well, if you pull, you help you, you give someone a ride, they're going to murder you with an axe. Probably not. They probably just want to get to the next stop, you know? And so think of all the altruism that's kind of prevented because of some of these horror stories. Um, you know, the homeless, you know, you, oh, I don't want to give anyone, anyone change because one time I saw this person get into a Mercedes. Well, firstly, did you, or did you hear that? Secondly, you can normally tell if that, if that person truly looks disheveled, I doubt they own a Mercedes. You know what I mean? So, so yeah, there's, there's a, there's a very cautionary tale there. Sometimes, you know, these, these kind of worst case scenarios do shape our behavior and all other elements of our lives. Yeah. I mean, it's, nobody knew me. Obviously I'm not going to be like, Hey, look, look me up on Instagram. <laughs> look me up on Facebook. <laughs> I am this person cross reference me. Um, 
but uh, yeah, it was just, you know, a sad situation. I don't, I don't carry myself as somebody that says, look me up or do this or do that. As you discussed earlier, I, I was referencing some of the work that I did in terms of me giving back to my community, not boasting about what I do. And, and I typically don't, man, I put out probably less than 1%, you know, I'll be in Africa for a month, five weeks. I'll put out maybe one post of me dressing up as Spider-Man for the kids, you know, uh, I just came back. That was mission two in Ecuador in three months. It takes me four flights to get to this location. Um, each way we're talking about four flights going, do a week of surgery, 40, 50 cases, four flights back. Um, we did two, two medical missions there. I'll put out maybe a story. And it's very important for me to do that because I found myself in Ecuador. And as you, you know, I'm trying to raise money for this woman and children's hospital with a hospital that I work at in Kenya. So I'm in Latin America trying to get this hospital built. And the only thing that I got going for me is my credibility. So some of the people, I don't like to use the word followers, but some of the people that are connected with me, some of the people that are connected with me would message me saying, oh my God, I, I, showed, I showed some of the work you did to my family and they want to donate. What if I didn't? What if I'm just, hey, there's this guy who says he does this work. So that's that fine line. And it reminds me of this story of, and it's not to get religious, more, more um, humanitarian to begin with. Uh, one of Prophet Muhammad's friends was a man by the name of Abu Bakr. And nobody really, you know, he's a good man. It gave, gave well, some people say the term shirt off my back came from him. Uh, when Prophet Muhammad died, he said, I'm going to assign you Abu Bakr to be the, the head of this. And I don't know if you've heard this story. So Abu Bakr became the, the religious person, the, the political person in the region. If you had a dispute with somebody, you came to him, he'll try to resolve it. Morning prayer would come about 5 a.m. And after morning prayer, he would grab his bag and walk the other way. And then he would do it and he wouldn't come back for hours. And he was the leader at this point. So people reported to him. So he'd do it again and again and again. And, and this guy named Omar, who's a warrior, man, big guy, was like, where the hell is he going? This guy, why was he appointed when he's never here? Is he actually doing what he's supposed to do? So he's like, I'm going to follow him. I'm going to figure this out. So Abu Bakr, they, he leads prayer, 5 a.m., finishes up, goes to his house, grabs his bag, walks the opposite direction of this desert. Omar follows him. Omar gets so scared. He goes back. He's like, I can't have him see me. But then he's like, the next day, he's like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to let him go a longer distance and just trail him where I can at least see him, but he can't see me. Follows him, follows him all the way, sees him go into this small house. Five, six hours later, he comes out of this house and leaves. Omar's like, the hell with this. I mean, not in quotations, but I'm going to figure this out. Knocks on the door. A lady opens up and she looks at him and goes, who goes there? And he was so well known, man. He was this tall, muscular man. He's like, what do you mean? Puts his hands on his chest. I'm Omar. She goes, I can't see you. He's like, what do you mean you can't see me? She's like, I'm blind. And in that thought process, he all of a sudden sees four or five children running in the background. He goes, who, whose kids are these? She's like, who are you? He's like, I'm Omar. She's like, I don't know you. Whose kids are these? She's like, orphans off the street that needed a roof over their head. She's like, okay, how do you take care of them? 
She's like, I don't. It's like, who does? She's like, somebody. Who, who is this person? She said, some man comes, helps teach him how to read, filters the grain, takes care of the animals and cleans. And he's like, who's this man? She's like, I don't know. So how do you not know of a random stranger that comes into your house every day to do these things? She said, I've asked him every day for his name. And he says, I'm a servant to God. I'm a servant of the people. And Omar said, how long has he been coming for? And she goes, for years. It took for Omar to go and snoop on him to see the work that he's been doing, even after he was literally appointed to what you can equal a president at the time of his village, his city, his people, he didn't tell anyone. Still one about his duties to take care of the people. So I seek inspiration from this man. The term shirt off my back, I heard, don't quote me on this, came from him when the prophet said, our people are starving, we're in a famine. He gave everything and he said, take the shirt off my back. And he said, no, 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 keep it. Keep it. There are some theologians out there And some philosophers that say if people knew half of what Abu Bakr did as a humanitarian, he would be among the likes of Gandhi, the way they looked at. But they don't because he did half of what he did in secrecy like this. It took for somebody who was young, curious to really figure out what was going on. And I kind of carry that mentality with me. <clears throat> I carry that mentality when it comes to some of the work that I do. It's unfortunate because in the day and age, you kind of have to You kind of have to show a little bit in order to gain respect to keep up with your projects or else, you know, how else we're up to $14,000 uh, for this hospital, you know, and it's already currently being built to kind of push it along. How else am I going to do that if I was just some random person asking for people on the money? You know, um, I mean, I, I, I've tried everything, man. I've put it up on social media. I put on my Spider-Man suit and I went to the Bean, which is the heart of Chicago literally put out a piece of paper that said photo from whatever you want to donate. I even had families, you know, that didn't have any money or the kids would be like, Spider-Man, Spider-Man. And the parents knew that you had to pay and it's, it's okay. Just come and take a photo, you know, and it just made their day, man. It made, and some people were so gracious. And some people are like, here's 20, you know, I love the work that you do. And I listen, man, when you're wearing a one piece that is like a millimeter or two, <laughs> And it's 55 degrees outside. It gets cold, my brother, in many parts of the body that should not be exposed to that. So, but yeah, I'm, try, I'm trying my best, man. And, and you know what? Nobody knew who was behind that mask, right? You just put it on. You put smiles on kids' faces. And, you know, you raise some money and you carry on, right? And that's, that's what it's all about, man. That's what it's all about. Beautiful. No, I love that story too. And to me, that really rings true of, of so many of, as, as an a, a religious person, but a spiritual person from the outside looking in, I'm like, it seems like there are just great humans, whether they were completely human or not. I mean, that's up to the, you know, the interpretation, but, and sometimes that gets lost in, oh no, we just worship them. What right. aren't they kind of showing you how you should be? Like, they don't seem to have prejudice. They seem to be out there with, you know, the the very poor and the, everyone. There seems to be no boundaries to their kindness. They seem to want to heal people. They seem to be inclusive. All these things that, you know, um, we strive for in, in the kind of altruistic world, yet 
sometimes it's interpreted the way that a human being wants to and puts down walls in the place where I would argue if the prophet materialized again, they'd be like, no, that's right. not really. I left you a book that told you <laughs> what we right. were thinking. And now yeah. you're fighting each other or you're murdering each other or you're hanging people from different colors from trees or you're telling this person because of their sexuality, they're not going to go to heaven. No. And so that's that's what's interesting is if you look at the core, what Jesus did, you know, what what the uh, the story that you told me, Abu Abu Bakr, have I got that oh, right? Abu Bakr, yeah. Um, you know, I mean, all these different people, there's that same common denominator. They were out there being kind and building community. So right. that was really, really powerful to listen to. Yeah, man. I mean, it's, you know, when you talk about no boundaries, right? I had a Spanish speaking Mexican patient today. I had an African-American uh, patient uh, among the LGBTQ community. And I had an older uh, Caucasian gentleman as a patient, you know? I was just in South America taking care of Ecuadorians speaking Spanish while trying to build this hospital in Africa, yet I'm Palestinian Muslim, you know? Like, I don't know how much further this can really branch out, right? Like, it just, you try, man. I'm not perfect by no means. I'm a, I'm a pain in the ass to most people who know me. But um, the, the truth is, you know, uh, as somebody told me before, you die twice in life. The first is when you take your last breath. And the second is when your name or the impact you made is echoed for the last time. I don't want to die twice. I'll, I'll take my last breath, sure. But somewhere there's going to be a hospital in Kenya and the children's ward is going to have a Spider-Man painting on it. And they're going to say, yeah, Spider-Man paid for this room. Spider-Man made this room possible. And that's me, that's me living, man, forever. And that's all that matters. So, Beautiful. Well, first, it. we need to see if we can get one of the actual actors of Spider-Man to, to be aware of this project, oh, so we can man. get him involved. Dude, that would be that would be amazing. I don't know how to get a hold of these people. I mean, I I I have an actress friend of mine who's going to be in this show coming out January first. Everybody's talking about it on Netflix. It's that show in different parts that you can watch it in any different way. Different order, she, yeah, I saw about that. Yeah, she's in six out of the eight episodes and she messages me and one of her good friends in the last Spider-Man film and uh, she reached out to him, but they're busy. So she messaged me. She's like, hey, my nephew just loves Spider-Man and he's going through you know, cancer and chemo. Can you just put out something? And I said, yeah, I just went downstairs, put on my suit, sent him a recording she was like, he loved it. He enjoyed it. So I don't know, man. She, she's three degrees of separation from Tom Holland. <laughs> she couldn't get him. I don't know if we can. Maybe you can work your magic, brother. I mean, you have, you have, you have, uh, what's his name? Um, um, Josh Brolin. Josh Brolin, yeah. man. You have Josh on, yeah. You, you know, I, I talk, uh, so you have Josh on, on, on deck and he wrote the foreword in your book, correct? That's correct, yeah. Yeah, so uh, man, I was I was really frustrated. I didn't get that raffle. I was like, I, I put in for that. I'm like, that would be cool to have, you know, a Josh Brolin and your books, you know, signed. Well, so, what's funny is that someone put, bought. I mean, they just made a great, you know, big big donation. They won almost every book. So then I reached out to him and said, Hey, would you mind if I divvied some of these other ones to other people? Um, and I wish you'd known because I would have kind of, you know. Yeah. Send one your way as well, but uh, they yeah, very, very okay. kindly said, "Nope, I, I just need one. Feel free to give the other ones away," which was wow, awesome. that was nice. So, that was nice. 
Well, so, tell yeah. Josh I said hello <laughs> from you know another Spider-Man in another verse. So. <laughs> well, let me let me see what I can do because I think Tom, for a start, would be an amazing interview. He seems like a really good person, um, you know, talented as hell as well. When you yeah. look at all the stuff, he's a gymnast, he's a dancer, he's yeah. a singer. I mean, yeah. it's pretty yeah. pretty phenomenal. Um, in his actually in his Spider-Man audition, Robert Downey Jr. was not expecting him to do a backflip. So when he did a backflip in the middle of the like the test, it just threw him off. Yes, when you mentioned he's a gymnast, he's more than just an actor. You Absolutely, hundred yeah. percent. Well, I yeah. I want to move to to actor Kenya as far as you know the conversation. But before we do, we need to hear those two stories you told me. So there, there's tension in certain groups, as you mentioned, law enforcement, other communities. Right. Tell me about a couple of the the heroic actions of some of your brothers in blue um that wouldn't have made the news because it doesn't fit the narrative you know man i have a you know one of my very very good friends is a palestinian american um just a, a highly beautiful person inside and out uh somebody who from the outside looks so intimidating but so soft on the inside you know it's kind of it's I remember him going out for a call. It's it's funny. This isn't even the story that we talked about. So he went out for this call and a mother had called 911 on her son because he put the vegetables on the ground and got heated. So there was yelling and she's like, I want you out of the house. 911. So my friend shows up, him and his partner, who happens to be, I think, Venezuelan Palestinian. So you have this mix and they show up and... They're like, what is going on here? Let's just be rational. So my, my friend immediately, he's like, listen, guys. He's like, listen, man, hug your mom. He says, hug your mom. He's like, all right, mom, hug your son. And then my friend goes, all right, group hug. And literally goes in and hugs, <laughs> hugs both of them. And they started, and he, you know, not to, not to, not to lecture them, but he was like, guys, this is, this is the most beautiful house on the block. We were shocked, not, not that we're referencing, you know, whether a house is beautiful or not to get a call. It was quiet. We'd never gotten a call here. He's like, what's going on? And they were, he's like, they were in tears. They offered tea. And it was just a different approach. This same friend, this same person um, got a call. Um, there was a, a homeless man on a rooftop. I don't know how he made a, his way on a rooftop third floor and uh, he was threatening to um, jump off and the fire department didn't know if he had a knife or not. He had, you know, said he did. So police had to go up and then he was running, literally running to jump off. And my friend ran after him, tackled him down, used his brown belt, soon to be black belt jujitsu skills, brought him down and he's safe and sound and alive. And that didn't make the news, you know, um, which is sad because, uh, look, <clears throat> there are a lot of beautiful things people do that don't make the news. And there are a lot of bad things people do that also don't make the news, right? But when you're out in plain sight and somebody, somebody does a bad thing or some people, a small percentage, do that and they're in plain sight, it's going to be dramatized. There are amazing people on all ends. I have worked with some of the most incredible healthcare providers ever. And I've worked with some incredible, some healthcare providers I wouldn't let touch 
that rat that ran past me in the alley in Chicago. But you won't see that because that's behind closed doors. You're not doing the work outside to be filmed or whatever it is. Not to say, I mean, look, you do bad and you're filmed. Hey, man, by all means, how many times have you done bad without being filmed and so on? So, but there's got to be a gift to society, you know, having worked pre-hospital, having worked trauma calls, having been on that side, having worked side by side with everybody from fire departments, medics, police, sheriffs, and so on. It's not cool when you're trying to do your job, when you're trying to, when you have a rollover car accident and there's cameras all over you when you're trying to do your work. It's just not. First of all, it's not respectful to the patient, the future patient, the victim. It's not respectful to you. It's not cool when, you know, I talk to some of my buddies now in the fire department where they'd respond to a bar fight or some drunk guy decided to punch his way into a bar and he's intoxicated and there's nothing but cameras and everybody's swearing at them saying, man, get out, get away from my friend, get the F away from my friend when they're literally there to try to help them and cameras come up. That's not cool. I don't like the fact that, and, and anybody will tell this, I don't like the fact that everybody that's kind of working pre-hospital law enforcement, you know, anybody that's out on the streets have been labeled a certain way. I don't like that. I think accountability needs to take place by no means, shape or form. And hey, man, look, I had my scrubs on and I marched, marched with 10,000 other Chicagoans peacefully when the George Floyd issue happened. And I was there because I felt that that was the right thing to do. At that moment in that protest, nobody threw anything. Nobody caused chaos. Uh, nobody was burning anything. Um, and again, I think that's where both sides are misunderstood because all it takes, and I go back and I'm trying to conclude the circle, is for one person out of the 10,000 protesters, including me that I was there for that one, to do something stupid. For all of us to be labeled by another group as rioters, not protesters. And this is the mistake that if one person among 10,000 can do something bad, and then all of a sudden now we're labeled something completely different and vice versa when it comes to people working in the, in law enforcement, fire, um, ambulance. And this is my circle around that. And I think that's the best way I can conclude that. Beautiful. Well, just to add to another positive story out of that, yeah. talk to me about what was perceived as a carjacking that turned it in. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. No, it conversation. Was, yeah, it wasn't even a carjack. It was, uh, it was, um, it was another friend of mine who, um, I don't know why or how, and I didn't know that the back of the police cars are open or unlocked, or I don't know if it was open or unlocked or something was going on where he saw somebody that was getting ready to go in his car, went into his car while he was stepping to report. And immediately, if, you know, obviously somebody goes in the back of your car or near you or comes up to you really fast, you're going to draw your weapon because you don't know if they're coming after you. 
And it turned out that this guy was of a rival gang running away from that, the rival gang coming to the police officer saying, man, they're, they're, I don't want to, you know, name the, the gangs, but so-and-so are after me, so-and-so are after me. So uh, my friend searched them, no weapons, get in the car, puts him in the car. He's like, what are you doing? Runs, runs, takes his ID, runs, uh, runs his name. He's like, what are you doing? Why? He's like, why are you involved? In, where do you live? Before dropping him off, talk to him for two hours about vocational schools, about what he can do, how he can fix his future. That story wasn't nowhere to be found, man. You know, I don't like when I see on social media, whenever you see, hypothetically speaking, an officer roll up in the quote unquote hood and plays basketball with the kids. And people are like, ah, oh, that's a feel good story. No, man, this guy could have played high school basketball, community college basketball, college basketball, and just loves basketball. We all know if you love basketball, the first thing you do when a ball is at your hand and you see a hoop, you are shooting. This is just like, it's instinctual. It's why they take our money whenever we go to these amusement parks like Six Flags, when we pay, we pay $10 for two shots. We're so inclined to just shoot. This love for the game is just love for the game. And that's how we connect as a society. We connect as a society through music, arts, and what is major in our culture, sport. I don't like when people automatically are like, no, no, this is just a, a, a feel-good segment for them to say, no, it's not. It's just, it's just a guy who loves playing ball, trying to play ball with kids. That's it, you know? Um, I mean, how? The same kid that was crying that I was putting an IV in that hated me, you know, in the, in, in, in the clinic in Kenya, saw me out when they were playing football, soccer, and we went out and we were teammates and we were smiling and laughing in the evening. It's just like perception, man, perception. So it's, it's, it's unfortunate, man. Look, do I think, I think we need to hold anybody accountable. Accountability, I think accountability from one side is what they want to see more of. Um, and I think more of it is happening. Uh, and I think one side, when they say abolish or defund or this, no, I think there's, there's different terms like educate, you know, um, mental health has become such a big factor that I do truly believe that a lot of our police departments, fire hospitals need to learn more about because man, let's just be real. Your old school officer on the street who's been doing it for 25 years you know he knows what he knows and he's good at what he knows but there's been recent newer and a greater push on mental health that we all need to be aware of to do our jobs a little bit better so um you know i i don't you know uh, uh, a caucasian police officer that grew up in the suburbs that decided to become a chicago police officer that all of a sudden is put into a predominantly African-American or Latino neighborhood needs to learn the culture, needs to understand it. Because if you learn the culture and understand it, you can better help the people. You know, it was the same push that there's an area here in Bridgeview. It's a predominantly Arab population, predominantly. And they did a poll and they found that the police department wasn't, in, wasn't so highly ranked among the people. 
And why? It was because there was a lot of misunderstanding between the police officers and the, the, the calls that they were getting. There was a language barrier. There was a cultural barrier. So the head of the mosque went to the mayor and he said, why don't you hire more guys on? I think they hired four or six. Within three or four years, dramatically changed. Dramatically for the perception of the community that that, that specific department was serving was favored much more. But that, that needs to also take play. I mean, um, we, we, we in healthcare have to learn about um, new things all the time. So I just think that's something that I feel, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that might be a little bit lacking on that end. Again, it's not my expertise. Um, even veering off on this subject is not something that I feel like I, uh, you know, I think as a community member more so than anything, well, I think what's powerful about the stories you just told is that you were at the George Floyd march, um, and yet you also told stories of, of some incredible heroism and compassion by police officers. And I think that's just it. The George Floyd thing was wrong, and I think pretty much every person in uniform would agree with that. What's interesting is actually when you look at the department, they handled it the way it should have been handled, which was... They threw the book at the the officers involved and it was taken care of. So that was, I think, also lost in translation. But we have to hold the people accountable that screw up, the people that should never have been wearing the uniform in the first place. We have to address contributing factors that maybe make a good officer and turn them into a bad officer. But also we have to address the other side, which I talk about a lot. What are we doing, as you touched on earlier, to create more violence on our streets in our community? And you live in this, the, the city where Al Capone rose and the only reason that he was known was prohibition of alcohol now we have prohibition of drugs which has empowered shitbags of the world for almost a hundred years and now we're dealing with that ripple effect so hearing you you know tell both sides of the story i think is what a normal human being does anyway hey there's bad on this side there's bad on this side but there's good on this side and there's good on this side and there's usually way 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 more good on both sides absolutely i mean it takes one one i mean we hear this all the time one bad fruit will rot the whole batch absolutely uh, i think on that end you know that's having having you know i would say man look i do jujitsu i tell people all the time the mats are where literally police fire doctors engineers housekeepers, conservatives, liberals, tattooed hipsters, you know, religious people all call each other brothers on those mats, on the jiu-jitsu mats. So it's like when you, when you train in certain martial arts, man, you meet people from all sides. And, and when you actually get down and, and you're at their level and you have something in common, you realize you have more in common, you get to know people from quote unquote both sides when the reality is no you just get to know people from all walks of life it's not a both sides it's not a one side it's just getting to know people from all walks of life period absolutely absolutely yeah. well one one quick tangent before we go to you know your work overseas again this is an apolitical question it's just uh, what did you see with your own eyes you're in anesthesia so obviously you're in the more acute patients we had a real deal virus that definitely um, you know, in my opinion, took a lot of people that are already very ill and 
and finish them off. Also, it was opportunistic of some people that were seemingly healthy that suddenly succumbed to it. I think, you know, for example, shift work, you know, doctors, nurses, police, fire, EMTs, medics, etc., were more vulnerable because of their compromised immune system. But taking any kind of loading, again, the question, um, talk to me about your experience in your field of the last couple of years. Yeah, man. I mean, um, you know, when it first hit, uh, I was doing a one-week contract. This is this is funny. I was doing a one-week contract in the middle of nowhere, Illinois, and I lost cell service. And I decided, you know what? I'm gonna go off social media for a week. And I don't remember the dates. It was like March seventh to March fourteenth, March when when everything was going. So I said, I'm going to go off social media. And there wasn't much talk about it in this small town of 3,000 people. Not much talk about it, really. As I was driving home, I began to get cell service. And I began to get message after message after message from friends. As it comes, right? Hey, where you are, do they have toilet paper? <laughs> hey, where you are, do they have toilet paper? Hey, where you are, do they have toilet And I'm like, what is going on? It must be a C. diff outbreak. I'm, yeah. <laughs> so I thought to myself, all right, I'm not far. I'm about 20 minutes out. Let me go back to the big gross, the one grocery store in the town. Let me go get some toilet paper. So now unknowingly off of social media, not having watched people brawl over toilet paper and Kleenex and unknowingly, here I am doing favors for my friends, grabbing five, six batches of toilet paper and everybody's looking at me. Like, what is this guy doing? Not knowing that I was contributing to this chaos. You're about to be the Al Capone of toilet paper is what happened. I was the alcohol. <laughs> Every, everybody was eyeing me. So uh, I go back, texting my friends. I'm like, I'm here. They all show up within 30 minutes as if I was carrying gold. I'm like, man, is it that bad? Like, what's going on? So that's that was my introduction. to, And then all of a sudden, emails, emails, emails. I was a contractor at the time. ORs are shutting down. No more elective cases. I'm walking you through a step-by-step process. ORs are shutting down no more elective cases because we don't, we're worried about having beds. What I saw because I was at three hospitals was true. There was a bed shortage. We were having a hard time. Okay, let me redefine bed shortage. One nurse in the ICU can handle two patients. One nurse on a medical surgical floor can handle five or six. This ICU nurse gets sick and calls off bed shortage. This med surgeon nurse gets sick and calls off bed shortage. It's not just the physical amount. It's not a physical space. It is a fact of staffing issues. We have, ever since I started in healthcare 15 years ago, have always had bed shortages. And you want to know something for any ER nurses out there listening? Tell me how many times you guys have gotten into fights because your patient's been in the ER for seven hours. You're trying to dump them out. And I don't mean dump them out in a bad way. You're trying to get them up to the floor, but there's a bed shortage. 
So now your waiting room is full because you got no space. And you're full of people like me that are like, what the hell is going on? And then when the media is like, you're not going to believe it. People are waiting in the hallways. And all the medics are like, what the fuck are you talking about? We always wait in the hallways. Exactly. So I think the term bed shortage was not defined well to begin with. Okay. So, and again, I'm taking it step by step for the listeners that are listening. You're walking with me right now. Okay. Uh, Elective cases get canceled because we didn't want to do a knee or a hip or whatever that required one night of stay in case somebody else was more sick. And look, your knee or hip can wait, generally speaking, right? Your, your, a lot of these cases, your wrist, whatever it is, a lot of them, most cases are elective, right? Most cases are scheduled months ahead of time. So there was a bed shortage. Now, what we started seeing was an, an acute increase in something we had no idea about. Some people were getting sick. So now the hospitals that are already bed shortage due to nursing staff, there's always been nursing travel agents. I'm a contractor myself. Now you couple just a little bit, some hospitals a lot more, but just just like in flu season, a peak of patients that are not your diabetes, heart failure, high blood pressure, stroke, some of the other things that we see, but now we add something to it, creates a problem because you don't have the staff, you don't have the equipment, and uh, now you don't actually have the physical beds. So I saw, I saw that, I saw, and, I, and I'll tell you, man, uh, two of my contracts were cut as a contractor. Like, we don't need you for elective cases, so that. So, uh, and then on the other end, man, uh, I lost three people that I knew, two nurses and a physician to COVID. One nurse was a GI nurse, just worked in the GI lab, but knew there was a shortage in ICU nurses, again, bed shortage. He was an ICU nurse 20 years ago, young, healthy man. I think maybe he might've been a type two diabetic, didn't drink, didn't smoke. Man, this guy took care of my dad when my dad needed a colonoscopy. Like he said, I got you, he's family goes up to the ICU and catches it. It was all over the news, unfortunately. Hits, didn't want to be intubated. He ended up on ECMO. They had to transfer him to another hospital and ended up passing away. You know, this is somebody who took care of my family. So that was all during that time too. So there was a lot of emotion going on. A lot, a lot of emotion. Then it kind of leveled out. But the fear kind of stayed. And... It was hard for me because, yes, I was one of the first people in America, in the world, actually vaccinated. Uh, I got to tell you a funny story about that, how I was apprehended in Norway. Please. <laughs> uh, yeah. Secondary to my CDC vaccine card. Okay. We'll talk about that. Uh, I never saw Norway. I just saw Norway from the back of a police car. <laughs> That's all I saw in Norway. <laughs> because we're on this topic of COVID, right? Like. So anyway, we'll get back to that. Um, and then I was sad because here I was seeing friends of mine. One of them is a Muay Thai instructor. He actually coaches on the Team USA team, Muay Thai instructor, Palestinian guy that was not allowed to have his place open despite doing everything correct, moving his bags six feet apart, had a lot of ex-military, had a lot of people that were dealing with mental illness that would come there for their therapy. And he was, I'll never forget this photo he put out. 
He said, why is my gym closed when the Macy's across the street from me has no more parking spots from the amount of people in it? That was my problem. That was when I began to have a problem with it all. Listen, you want to be consistent, be consistent throughout. In Germany, look, when this first came out, it was a contagious infectious disease. And truly, we didn't have the staff for it. So we needed to figure out a way to limit it, stop it, slow it down. And we didn't know how. So we, we quarantined because history shows that's where it comes from. I mean, it, it, it comes quarantina, you know, 40. It, it comes from this like taking away. And I go back and I say this, like even, even religious facts. Prophet Muhammad said, if you in your area have a disease, don't go elsewhere to potentially take it. And if you know there is a disease elsewhere, don't go to it, right? So even historically speaking, there are people have always knew, okay, if there is a disease, we need to slow down our movement to figure this out when we figure this out. But it was really inconsistent. So then slowly hospitals realized they were losing a lot of money because elective cases bring in money. So then all of a sudden we were allowed to have elective cases again. And uh, then the ORs opened up and things kind of waxed and waned. Some stores closed down, restaurants were closed down and restaurants opened up. I didn't understand that I needed to come in with a mask, but then 10 feet later, I can take my mask off and breathe the same air. You know, you just got to trust the science, bro. Trust the science. Man. <laughs> Coming from a profession where we have masks fit tested, because yeah. if I don't and I go into a fire, I yeah. will asphyxiate. And if I don't, yeah. have an N95 you can't even fit. have a beard, man. Look, yeah, exactly. fit tested because we, we, I had to shave. I mean, look, I have a little bit of stubble now. This would be not appropriate. Yeah. So, so we understand masks and seals yeah, in the fire service yeah. probably more than most. Of course. Of course. Of course. And, uh, that was the thing, man. Oh, look, I've intubated tons of COVID patients. Not to say that they weren't there, they were there. Anybody that tells me COVID's a hoax, it was not a hoax. I've intubated tons. I've also seen a lot of residual healthy people that had COVID that are going through some memory issues, that were runners that are no longer able to run as much as they could because it's left their lungs scarred. So one thing I didn't appreciate was the fact that it was taken completely not seriously by one group. And that just doesn't work either. The other thing I didn't appreciate is that the one group that took it seriously was not consistent. You know, Germany, I think it was Germany or somewhere in Europe where they said, okay, our target Walmart, whatever equivalent, we'll open it. We'll have food, we'll have tools, we'll have whatever. But if you want to buy toys or bikes or clothes, that's off limits. Why is it that a furniture store was shut down, but I can go and buy couches from Walmart? Why is it that a small toy store was shut down, but I can go buy toys from Target? Why is it that this video game store is shut down, but I can go get those from this store? Or this stereo shop was shut down. All these small businesses were murdered. Well, also, as you touched on with your friend, why were all the gyms closed in an element where health and community was the most important thing? But the fast food places were packed and they were now allowed to deliver not only food, but alcohol to your house. Yeah, I don't understand. I get the close contact of, let's say, Brazilian jiu-jitsu or this. I get the close proximity. Somebody's literally breathing in your face. And at that point, I would have validated that. But there are a lot of 
gyms that can and were shut down initially that can give you your six feet and eventually gyms did that right they did every other treadmill well crossfit does that anyway otherwise you get a kettlebell or a barbell to the face so you literally yeah, exactly. have platforms that separate yeah. you and the next yeah. person yeah yeah so i don't know man i think the i think the inconsistency of it made a lot of people I mean, I remember going to Boulder because I, I climb and I remember going to this place in Northern California where you had to get in. You were not allowed unless you had your COVID vaccine. Okay, cool. And you had to keep a mask on inside. And I'm like, but we're all vaccinated. And the doors were wide open, the garage doors. And I'm like, but we're technically outside. Like we're outside inside, but we're not really. We just have a <laughs> roof over. So that that was where I think that was where it started. I started to become less patient with the whole situation more so than anything. I mean, again, I go back and I say, I've intubated tons of COVID patients. I've lost people to COVID. I've had COVID twice. Um, despite being vaccinated. Despite being vaccinated. I mean, the other argument is that it could have hit me with harder symptoms. Yeah. And I, and I agree that I had a, a physician on and he said that very thing, but I think just to, as a tangent for a quick second, we have men and women, doctors, nurses, firefighters, you know, et cetera, who are still terminated because they didn't take a vaccine. And now we know the efficacy is not what people hoped. I don't think you have grounds for termination. So it is an important point. I got vaccinated as well. I don't know if I've had it. I haven't tested for anything. I got some really shitty flu a couple of weeks yeah. ago. I don't, weeks I don't ago, even think you had it last time we spoke too. You were no. telling me that. You yeah. Know, that but was. I mean, if I did, it was, you know, minimal symptoms and great. I'm very, very lucky. But, you know, I've had things like tonight has sort of lasted for a while. Is that from some sort of COVID thing? Who knows? But... Um, you know, it is an important thing with the efficacy. Just before we kind of progress through, I also want to get your perspective. One of the things that broke my heart about this last two years is that all the lessons that Mother Nature gave to us were crumpled up and just thrown over the shoulder. What percentage, roughly, of the poor men and women that we lost to COVID had underlying health conditions already, whether it's lung-related, whether it's obesity, uh, hypertension, diabetes, etc.? Oh, man. So it's it's a good topic. I think so when we talk about the men and women, when we talk about people, people in healthcare, um, you know, the ones that I knew were fairly healthy. But speaking of a patient population, the majority of the ones that I had to intubate, not saying that there aren't any underlying factors of healthy people. Yeah, there was a doctor I worked with that would cycle to work every day when he had COVID they had to move his bedroom from the second floor to the first because he couldn't go up the stairs for four months. This guy would, this guy is the kind of guy who buys a bicycle for $10,000. Like that, that, but with that being said, multiple comorbidities, multiple, 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 uh, obesity, diabetes, hypertension, sleep apnea, some sort of heart failure, you know, vascular disease, um, you know, high lipids, you know, a lot of these things that we almost see on a daily basis, obviously were, unfortunately, in my experience, the majority of the patients that I had to, um, that needed, that required a little bit more acute care. Well, yeah. And I just uh, thank you for that, because I'll, I'll let you get back to the, the rest of the progress now. But I think it's, that is the takeaway is that those patients are still dying every day. Those patients are dying in front of you, in front of people like myself. And without, acknowledging that element and saying and it should have been done two years ago but we can start today 
all right, we gotta we gotta change the way we feed our children in schools and teach them about food. We gotta remove the sodas and the fucking fast food companies that have weaselled their way into these institutions. We gotta support PE programs and sport again. We gotta build more pedestrian areas and and cycle only areas and all these things so that we can address the physical and the mental health crisis. But by saying, oh, it was a virus and it's gone now, we've basically allowed all the deaths that were happening happening up till two and a half years ago to carry on. And now you've added more obesity, added more mental health problems. So now we're going to lose even more people because there's a refusal to acknowledge the underlying health elements that Mother Nature exposed by releasing a virus that preyed on mostly people that were already vulnerable. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, the elderly we can't control, right? I mean, we we all wish that we can grow old and be that 95-year-old that's still walking four or five miles, but sometimes our hearts give out for no reason. Sometimes our lungs. So that, and I will never fault. You know, if you're 87 years old and uh, you know, you have some kidney disease or, you know, your heart's starting to wear off that those are not in the population that I reference when I reference this, I'm talking about your 20 to about 60 year old. Um, it's sad that I have to say 60, it should be 70 or even more. Um, sad that you have to say 20. Yeah. And, and look, man, I think the biggest issue with some people that did not want to take the vaccine was that, yes, they referenced a lot of the other issues we were going, a lot of the other real issues, valid issues that they referenced that we were going through in the States. Obesity, diabetes, you know, heart disease, very valid. The problem is that they've never cared about these issues up until something had to revolve around them. Okay, we need you to take this vaccine, but what about one, two, three, four, five? Well, you didn't care about it until now. So I think that if you've shown consistency in caring about community health, I'll take you seriously because you've cared about community health because this is what you're all about. But then all of a sudden now, if you want to say, what about, what about, what about not referencing the, the bad food that's served to our children every day in schools, the unhealthy food, the food deserts in African-American neighborhoods and so on, then I don't know if I can take you seriously. You know, it's a shame because some of the certain populations that I have, obesity, secondary to food deserts, man. There's nothing but McDonald's and Burger King that gets built in the neighborhoods. And there's not a single grocery store in sight with fresh fruits and vegetables. Call it a government issue, a city issue, uh, but it's an issue. And it's not being addressed. I mean, public health starts at the top. Tertiary care, this is it. So... I think that that's, that's one of the big things. And yeah, man, I, I wish we can address it. I'm here to tell you if, look, I'll just be honest with you, man. We, we need to push, the, we need to push McDonald's. We need to push Burger King. We need to push Kellogg. We need to push all this because this is what keeps up disease and disease keeps up big pharma. And it's a beautiful circle making billions if not trillions for certain people absolutely and it's blood money i mean it really sounds dramatic but it's if you look at it and that's the problem is as you said the people that were beating the drum because it fit their politics for that moment where are you now if you were all about fighting obesity because you didn't want the vaccine beautiful come stand to the left and to the right of me 
and let's fix this. Let's, let's empower these local farmers that were put out of business by these fucking mega farms that are spraying our food with chemicals and filling our, our you know, our meat full of all shit, kinds of yeah. shit. Yeah, let's yeah. change that. Otherwise, as you said, they were just empty words to fit your agenda at that moment. I went, uh, I've like cut off almost all processed sugar out of my diet, man. Like I've cut off, um, like every now and then, you know, I'll be at Panera bread. I'll slip up. I'll take a baguette. You know, it's, it's, you know, simple carbs more than anything. You can't really hide from it, but no soda, no Pepsi, no Gatorade, no juice, um, no candy, no cookies, no brownies, uh, even Greek yogurt that says, Oh, we're mango. Nothing plain zero sugar, man. I feel like a million bucks, my brother. People ask me people all the time. Hey, you look like you're 25. No, it's simple. My diet, I don't drink and smoke. You know, why am I, I'm pushing higher grades at my age climbing, having not climbed for a quarter percent of what some people do is a lot of it is diet. My, your sleep is affected by diet. Your mood is affected by diet. Sugar plays such a huge part in all this. They don't want you to know that. They want you to have Eggo waffles in the morning because they taste great. So, and look, as a healthcare provider, I speak on this because I see this all the time. It's a sad day when a BMI, a body mass index, I look and I'm like, it's under 40. That's a sad day. The statistic, and I've checked this over and over again because I do cite it a lot. We have... 70% of our country that is either overweight or obese. And I think the obese one is now over 40%. So almost half of Americans aren't even overweight. They are obese. That, I mean, that should be terrifying. That should be, I mean, you know, as you said, you, you, you get some of these, 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 um, movements, whether it's, you know, you, you, you're non-binary or whatever, and they get so much fucking airtime. Where are the people with the signs and setting fire to police cars talking about obesity and diabetes? And the mental health epidemic. Because if we had the same passion as, as a, a, a Canadian ice hockey team that won the fucking Stanley Cup and then burns the city down, if we had that same passion to, you know, the Super Bowl or the World Cup on the actual health of our nation, it would be a, a, an, an, just an incredible paradigm shift in this country. But we just roll over and we just take it, you know. And as you said, there is this, this kind of, synergy between these mega farms these monocrops these you know drug companies and and you know this this just you know there's no better way to describe it they are creating addicts that we as healthy people are useless to them and the dead are useless to them but you sustain someone you keep them chronically on hypertensive meds or cholesterol meds or you name it you've got a fucking you know addict for decades we'll keep you alive we'll give you cpaps we'll stick tubes in your stomach as long as you keep paying we're golden diabetes type 2 man number one treatment is weight loss 100 percent. but that's heresy you know, but they, want, but they want you to take yeah they want <laughs> you to take metformin they want you to take you know so obviously there's some genetic factors to it look i'm not going to take away the science aspect of it but a lot of it is control how come you don't see this in other societies though man look i gotta be honest with you um most of the countries I work at as an anesthetist doing anesthesia are very impoverished, developing nations, which means that the majority of their food source is not protein because protein is expensive. The majority of their food source is carbs, carbohydrates, your potatoes, your rice, your bread. 
they theoretically eat more carbs than we do. You know, I wouldn't say we definitely eat more junk food than they do. But they walk, they move. Why is it that I can be all over the world from Africa to Europe, but the moment that I hit my terminal, the moment that I hit my gate, going back to the US, immediately I notice what we discussed, these percentages. I'm not even kidding. And England's like, getting worse too. England's starting to climb. Me, it hits me when I'm not in the country for months. When I've bounced between Africa, I'm in Europe, I'm in Holland here. And then I get to my game and I'm like, whoa, I'm not by any mean. My, you know, again, we've discussed this. Some of these reasons are out of the people's hands, but a lot of them are, a lot of them, are, you, you kind of have to take ownership of your body. You got to take ownership of yourself. You cannot keep blaming other people. You have to take some sort of ownership. Yeah. Um, but like so, you said, though, with the food deserts, the other side of the conversation, because ownership is 100%, you know, the, the only thing that we can control the individual. But if you create an environment where on every corner there's a gun store, a liquor store, and a McDonald's, what are the chances of you creating healthy, happy people in that neighborhood? You know? So we have to address the environment too. Not when it make chickens a dollar. And then you got to go and you have to pay an arm and a leg for, you know, these increasingly prices of produce. Yeah. You know, why would subsidize? I? Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to go and get a McChicken because mm -hmm. I'm going to, that's, it's a dollar and that's good enough for me. Absolutely. So I, so there's, I wish we did, man. If we just put half of the energy that we put in the last two or three years on some of these topics, we can tackle them truly. So, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I want to get to your international journey, but before we miss yeah. the door, you mentioned Norway. So let's let's hear that story before we progress to the African look, continent. I mean, look, because we were talking about COVID, right? So I was one of the first people in the world that was vaccinated. Even when when we got the doses here in the hospital, the hospital got a very very small amount, and we were told it was only for ER intensive care ICU and anesthesia because we were most exposed. So I was one of the first, <clears throat> get it, get it stamped. Everything's good. Paperwork's good. <clears throat> I was going to, I had given a talk in Brussels. I was coming from Africa. I had landed in, in Amsterdam. I didn't even get out of the airport. I took a train right to Brussels. I was giving a talk there and then I had to go to Bergen to do the same. I land and everybody's presenting these QR codes of this like COVID vaccine. And then I show them this flimsy CDC paper <laughs> that's got some poor pharmacy students writing on it. That couldn't possibly be forged. Yeah, they couldn't. No, not at all. Not at all. God, not at all. Right. <laughs> and the Norwegians looked at me and they're like, what's this? I said, this is my COVID vaccine. They're like, you could have done this. I'm like, I could have, but I didn't. I'm in healthcare. I was one of the first. So they're like, well, I'm sorry. Where's your QR code? How'd you get in here? Americans are not allowed in Norway. <laughs> and I said, well, I've been in the EU and nowhere on your website, nowhere on your website did it say this. I've looked. He's like, well, things change every day. Another issue with the inconsistency that I was speaking of. Okay, so now what? Did you ever watch The Terminal with Tom Hanks? I have, yeah. Actually, the real guy that that was based on just passed away the other day. No way. It's I, was, I was the terminal. I was the guy. The, the, so they were like, hold on a second, stay here. So the police came back and they said, 
you're not allowed. And I don't know, man, the west side of Chicago came out of me. I said, I'm not going anywhere. And the reason why I took this, the reason why I came is I had a, I had a Syrian refugee friend of mine that I met in Greece almost seven years ago. And this poor guy had some sort of viral cardiomyopathy and had heart failure. And his ejection fraction, his heart was just functioning at barely 25%, couldn't go up a flight of stairs without getting short of breath. Young guy, able to fit. So I said, look, man, we got we to gotta get a pacemaker in you. He's like, I'm not doing it unless you're in Norway. I said, okay, let me figure this out. I'll get to Bergen and we'll go from there. They're not letting me out, man. I said, I remember standing up. I said, I'm going nowhere. I sat back down. And I'm thinking they're going to beat my ass. <laughs> like, again, this, this cross-reference, right? Like, you know, here I am. And they were so polite. Please, sir, we don't want any trouble. And I'm, I'm like, I'm getting ready. I have my hands up. And one guy goes, let me, let me make a phone call to the judge of the city. I mean, like, some higher up to see if he can reverse this law and get you in. And sure enough, he comes back with an official paper. I got to show this to you when I see you. They said, you have been rejected from the state of Norway. You are not allowed to enter. And I'm in this small airport in Bergen. No flights in, no flights out. Obviously, they could have sent me back to the U.S. No flights go from Bergen to the U.S. to begin with. I said, I got to go back to Holland because I had a couple of days left. Send me back to Holland. Um, I left Holland being able to eat in restaurants. And I'll get back to that. So they're like, well, we can't do that. The next flight to Holland's not in like two days or something. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I'm not going to stay in the airport. So now, I kid you not, cuffed, walk me in there, apologetic. Now here I am, right? Again, healthcare hero, healthcare hero, one of the first vaccinated, handcuffed for actually doing the right thing, right? We talk about paranoia. Walking out of this airport, and I couldn't, these two let me tell you something. The last time I saw these brothers in that refugee camp, they were being police escorted out of it. And it was such a hard thing for me to see. A people being displaced, not by their own will. Again, once again, being displaced, not by their own will. And the first time they see me in years, I'm literally handcuffed with police. And they were traumatized, man. And I couldn't hug them, couldn't see them, nothing. And here I am in the back of a police car. And I'm like, what is happening, guys? What's going on? We don't know what to do with you. What are you going to do? Police station this, that, police station. And then all of a sudden they decided there's this quarantine hotel they can take me to. Man, look, I turned on the charm, brother. They took me to this quarantine hotel. They left. I went back down. I said, guys, I'm vaccinated. Can I eat down here? Can I be in the lobby? Yeah, you can be in the lobby. Okay. Okay, cool. I can be in the lobby. Great. I saw my friends for like two hours and that was it. Couldn't stay with them through his procedure. I couldn't do anything, man. Five in the morning. I'm exhausted, brother. I'm exa I was bouncing from Kenya, Brussels, doing a talk here. Five in the morning, I get a knock on my door, man. I'm in my boxers. I'm damn near naked and to and two very beautiful lady police officers, Norwegians, 
are at my door and they're like, we got to go. And I'm like, well, this isn't what I'm thinking. And we got to go. <laughs> Where are we going? They said, we got to go to the airport. We found you a flight. And I'm like, it's five in the morning. They're like, yeah, your flight leaves in an hour and a half. Hurry up, get changed. We made you. They're so nice though. They had a bag of breakfast for me. You know, sandwiches or orange and a granola bar. And I'm like, can I take a shower? Like, we don't have time. We can go. I, man, I'm like, all right, well, I left the door open. Now it's changing. <laughs> it is what it is. So they take me to the airport. And I thank you guys. Thank you so much. They're like, no, no, no. We, we go inside with you. And I'm like, this is a little ridiculous. I'm going to take the flight back. Like, we have to ensure that you leave the state of Norway. Ticketing. I have now four police officers with me get to the gate. I'm like, thank you so much. No, no, no. You have to be the last person to be escorted on this plane. So we have to make sure that you're on. And I'm like, guys, everybody's looking at me. I didn't do anything wrong, but you know, I was wearing my New York Mets hat. I had a hoodie on. I looked exhausted. I had on the only pants I had on to put on were my rock climbing pants that were torn. So visibly, I didn't look my best. I look, I model. Okay. (laughs) Visibly. (laughs) By no means, shape, or form, modeling anything, man. But a guy that was in the back of a police car that smelled like a drunk dude who just took a piss in it and then, you know, briefly in a station and then in this. So they said, you're the last one on. I kid you not. Here I am being escorted on the plane as the last person. I take a seat. It's a two-seater, two-seater. The lady next to me freaks out. And she's talking in Dutch. And I'm like, what? And then she starts talking English. I don't want to sit next to him. I don't want to sit next to him. Look, do I blame her? No, I was this guy that was escorted by four police to sit next to her. That wasn't even the crazy part of the story. <laughs> I'm all ears. The crazy part's <laughs> coming up. Police leave, gate closes, obviously now. You know, I don't have a parachute on me. I'm not going to jump back down to Bergen. I'm she she asked to be moved to another seat. And I thought, man, look, I'm six foot one. This is great. I can sleep sideways. You know, I I always have a problem on these flights. I'm sleeping sideways. I'm hearing announcements. And then all of a sudden people are like bumping my chair. You know, these people that just pass by you and they're just. And then all of a sudden, is there a medic on the flight? Is there anyone on the flight? I wake up. I keep my stethoscope everywhere I go. Sure to behold, the lady that asked to be removed from me, that was sitting across from me, I look and her hand is on her chest and she's going like this, having a hard time breathing. And this poor flight attendant is fiddling with this oxygen tank and mask. And I was so exhausted. Without announcing, I just got up. I got up. I grabbed the tank. I was like, sir, sit down. I'm like, relax. Sir, sit down. Chill. I sat next to her. I'm like, can I put this mask on your face? She's having a stroke. She's having a stroke. Somebody's like, she's having a stroke. She had facial drooping, but all extremities are moving. I said, ma'am, do you have Bell's palsy? She goes, yes, I do. I said, she's not having a stroke. Relax. I went back to get my stethoscope that was in my bag because it was under my seat. And the guy, the flight attendant puts his hand on my shoulder. He's like, sit down, like forcibly, like shoves me down in my seat. I'm like, don't touch me. Relax. I'm like, I'm in healthcare. Let me do it. Sure enough, she was wheezing like crazy. 
She was asthmatic, had an asthma attack, and of course she checked her asthma her inhaler in. The pilot all of a sudden says, do we need to land? They said, hold on, make an announcement. Somebody's got to have a closed inhaler. And I know asthmatics that always take an extra inhaler just in case whenever they travel. Sure enough, somebody from first class had it. A closed inhaler, gave her two puffs. Everything was cool. We land, fire department's waiting, medic's waiting. Pilot goes, nobody but the medic and the patient out. So I walk her out. And then infects everyone and then everyone dies. She said, I'm so (laughs) sorry. She goes, I'm so sorry. Uh, I'm so sorry for what I judged you by. I apologize. She goes, I have a very beautiful niece. (laughs) <laughs> all of a sudden she was so knocked me up that's about your age <laughs> and uh, and then she went she she gave me her number she's like i live an hour away from the city come and have dinner with us and then as i was walking back to get my bag everybody's clapping you know the once criminal all of a sudden was a hero you know i went i went from no to healthcare hero for a second then i landed in holland and then all of a sudden they're like, no, you're not allowed to enter here unless you have this QR code to eat inside the restaurant. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. Three days ago, I was eating inside a restaurant. Now I go, I'm apprehended in Norway. Now I come back and you're telling me I can't eat inside a restaurant. This is ridiculous. Inconsistency. I go back. It's a full circle when we went like that. It's just, and sure enough, this airline, I'm not going to name, ended up giving me a voucher. Like, a, yeah, yeah, they gave me 225 euros. <clears throat> yeah that so is, it was that nice. is, that's such a good story i mean that really yeah. illustrates you know some of the ridiculousness and as you mentioned there was a serious element to it but so many of these rules and i saw i haven't i haven't researched it yet because i want to post it but something came out that someone shared where retrospectively sweden that had the least amount of lockdowns and everything per capita i believe lost the least amount of people now sweden is also a very active population, not a very obese population. But before I, you know, say that, I know all the facts. I got to wait to to research yeah. that. And Norway yeah. is the look, same, look, so I'm look sure. Look into some of that. the African nations, though. Look into some of the African nations. Look into Kenya, among some others, because yeah, they lost some, but for the majority, no. Like the response was pretty good. But then again, like they were, they they also, you know, they they distance. They're more outdoors. They work outdoors. They're not working in close quarters. So. I think that that was, yeah, that that was a little bit of ridiculousness where here I am with doing everything right. And then here I'm getting handcuffed, handcuffed coming out of this airport. Like it's, you know, and then, you know, criminal on the plane. God, God forbid I told her my name was Mohammed. Oh, I was going to say, like, he's a terrorist. Oh, You're going for my stethoscope. Man. It's Could a bomb. Imagine? <laughs> Could you imagine a guy named Mohammed being escorted by four police onto a flight? Like, this is just ridiculous. Yeah, I'd be happy. I'm like, if they're bringing him onto the flight, he's probably not a terrorist. Either that or they oh. hate everyone else on the plane. One of the two. You know, I, I still have issues now, man. I still have issues when I go in. They have to make like that extra call. And even though I have, glo- I don't know how, I have global entry in TSA pre- and I tell, the, I tell the people all the time, I'm like, if somebody on that plane is in an emergency or gets sick, you want me on that flight. So let's just cut this. Like, I don't know. I don't know. But again, some of the, some, I was telling the story and somebody's like, man, I want to, I want to, I want to, I want to live your life. But I take my stethoscope with me because um, it just, it just happens to me too often, man. I would say probably seven out of 10 flights. I'm responding to something. Really? Yeah, I've done it a couple of times, and it's interesting when they ask for a doctor, they need to be more specific. 
Because some of these doctors I've seen, you're like, we need to get these doctors away from this person. You know, being a podiatrist is not going to help their asthma attack right now. Yeah, my, my friend's a GI doctor. His wife is a PA. He's like, they asked for a doctor. I got up. They need to start an IV. He's like, I don't remember. The last time I started IV was 12 years ago. Okay, I called my wife to come and do this. Like, exactly. so, so, yeah, there has to be some specifics. I mean, yeah, of course, we all know, you know, every doctor, healthcare professional, nurse, nurse practitioner, PA should know the basics of when, you know, somebody's going to potentially code CPR, stroke, all these things to tell the pilot, hey, we, we need to land versus, you know, we can potentially manage this. I mean, I was on a flight to Australia and my brother and I had to manage a potential, what we thought was an allergic reaction to a kid. And we were four hours off of New Zealand and nowhere near any land. So once we cracked open that suitcase, we realized it had everything under the sun. Oh yeah. And I'm okay. Yeah. Yeah. Everything, adrenaline, atropine, intubation kit. And I'm okay with that because my brother's an anesthetist too. If there's any sort of emergency, I'm good with him being my partner in the air. So I was happy. I'm like, all right, bring this one on. One time out in Turkey, I get there and they shoot me away. This 80-year-old woman's in distress. And they say, no, no, go, go. There's two doctors. I look at them. They're terrified. I said, what's your specialty? He goes, ophthalmology. I'm like, mate, you're an eye surgeon. Okay, nothing against. I said, what's your specialty? She goes, child psychiatry. I said, okay, does anybody want to put a pulse oximetry on this woman now? It's been about five minutes and she's having short breath. I mean, it's so, anyway. She, she has glaucoma. I think that's the problem. You know, the, the funny <laughs> thing, I don't even, you know, I'm going to say this story. On my last trip, because one of my friends, also a, a CRNA, Alice was like, I don't want to get on this flight with you. Something's going to happen. Like, I'm going to take another flight. Something's going to happen with you. So here I am. I sit down on this flight. I was already in Miami, from Chicago to Miami. And there was a very beautiful woman to the left of me, okay? Um, And she was trying to, like, cover up her face a lot. And I'm like, what's going on? And then she, you know, she's like, can you wake me up when there's water? And we started chatting a little bit. And my friend, he's in the military. He's an anesthetist as well, CRNA. Um he's eavesdropping and i asked her what do you she's like what do you do for a living and i told her i said what do you do she goes i'm in the adult industry and i'm like okay i was so tired man i thought maybe she you know in the background recruiting you know not the actual physical star in this adult industry so my friend's eavesdropping i you know i said to her cual es tu nombre what's your name in spanish she says her name my friend messages me Cause he messaged his friend. He's like, you are sitting next to the Michael Jordan of porn stars. <laughs> <laughs> then he sends me a screenshot of like a video, which had like 400 million views, right? Like you can't make this stuff up. So after he sends it, I remember, remember her eating a sandwich and she was like, do you want half? And I'm like, man, I don't know where that mouth's been. <laughs> like I'm going to hold <laughs> So I get off. Alice is sitting in the back. She sees me smile. She's like, what did you do? I'm like, nothing. She's like, what happened? I'm like, nothing. She's like, something crazy happened. I'm like, no, I just, and sure enough, I Googled this person. I'm not going to give him any airtime, but sure enough, it was legit. I like, I was, it was like, 
And what, 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 what's, and she was complaining. She's like, I used to sit first class. This airline no longer has first class. And I'm like, who is this person? Like, you look like you're very well put together. I thought she was like a high-end real estate agent out of Miami. And sure enough, it wasn't the case. Sure enough, I told that story in the OR and two guys go, I know her. I want, I'm like, that's not something you want to announce in the <laughs> OR. Man. Like, that's not something I would have eaten the like. sandwich. <laughs> yeah. That's not something. You, but sure enough, every male that I've told this story to, un, other than me, proudly, knew who she was. God, the irony. I hope mom, if you're listening to this, I'm sorry. <laughs> Things happen. So the, the moral of the story is just don't take a flight with me, man. Crazy, crazy stuff happened. So, you know. All right. Well, speaking of flights, I had a firefighter from Kenya on Flora Cassie. Um, amazing conversation. She actually did talk about, you know, at least her area and the perception of COVID. Um, and again, it was more, I think, the calls that, the core volume increase, if I've got this right, were more from the fear than actual, you know, urgent presentation in a lot of the community that she served. Um, so talk to me about, you know, this hospital and, and some of the work you've done over there. So um, it's affiliated through Kenya Relief. Kenya Relief is uh, an organization that was founded by a guy named Steve James. He's a nurse anesthetist, CRNA. Um Man, it was founded out of nowhere. He got a phone call uh, 20 years ago when he was driving through the state of California and it was his daughter's university and they asked him to pull over. And the next sentence was what every father never wants to hear. Your daughter was found dead in her dorm room. So um, I, I tell the story because it's powerful because I don't just join any random organizations. So daughter was found dead in her dorm room. A couple of weeks later, he had enough courage to go in and obviously clean it out. And he had remembered that she talked about this orphan that she was sponsoring in Kenya. But I don't know if he forgot about it or what, but he ended up finding this like, thank you for your donation letter that orgs will send you. And um, he ends up ultimately um, wanting to meet this orphan that his daughter was donating money to as a final connection with his daughter. So when he went to Kenya, he saw the lack of healthcare, lack of hospitals or clinics, tons of orphans around and no schools. So he decided I'm going to bring a couple people from that I know, and we're just going to go out of it, rent a van and just make the van, the clinic. And then he did it again and did it again. And then it was a room and then a room turned into two rooms and then it turned into this. And now Kenya Relief does about a thousand operations a year, surgeries. They have a school for 700 children and an orphan home for 150. So how could I not jump on that story? How could I not go and want to want to meet? It gets even better. As a team, we're all having breakfast and uh, they have a kitchen there and they made us breakfast. And Steve goes, you guys enjoy your breakfast? And we said, yeah, we loved it. And he's like, do you want to meet the chef? Yeah, no problem. He goes, Newton, come out. Newton comes out, young kid, 21 years old. They're like head chef for the breakfast. And he's like, Newton made your breakfast. So everybody's thinking Newton. And then Steve goes, this is the orphan that my daughter was donating the money to. He was two years old. We kept in touch with him, put him through culinary arts school. And now he's one of our head chefs at Kenya Relief. Another reason why I admire this organization is 95% of their staff are through the community. 
community-based. And they grow. Now, the, initially the idea was let's get an ambulance because we don't have a women and children's shelter. Let's get an ambulance instead of putting them in a cab because the nearest hospital is three, four hours away. Didn't work because an ambulance is not a helicopter. Traffic is traffic and time is muscle or time is money when it comes to a woman that's bleeding in labor or a heart attack. So Steve decided, okay, we need to build a women and children's hospital and we're going to do it. And I'm like, yeah, we're going to do it. We're going to raise funds for it. And I'm going to help you raise funds for this. Uh, so that was Kenya, man. I've been twice going back a third time. Last time I went, I stayed for a month. I did everything. I was, um, you know, an anesthetist. I saw patients in between teams. And then I started uh, the orphan basketball team. That's currently now being coached by a professional basketball player in Kenya who sends me routine updates. And man, all my, all, all these guys, all my players, we played in a sand lot, brother. We had one hoop that was barely nine feet. The rim was bent and we were playing in sand and the kids had no shoes. You know, some of the things I won't talk about, but I have to reference like one of the more I've seen a lot in my life. One of the most powerful things I've seen when somebody approached me <clears throat> and they said, Hey, Muhammad, you know, kids don't have shoes. I said, let me pitch in. Let's, <clears throat> let's get them all shoes. The most powerful, the thing, one of the moments that brought me to tears was when I saw the kids putting on the shoes for the first time. You know, I, I don't know, man. I think it cost me like 200 or 300 bucks for 15 or 16 pairs. I don't remember. But it, yeah, that, that seeing him play, seeing him now doing well. Kennedy, Coach Kennedy's the professional basketball player that keeps up with him now. Knowing that that was something I feel good that I started. It all started with me playing basketball and getting them and saying, let's get together for practice. But I needed to be there. So, yeah, man, that was my life. My life was, and I'll send you some of these photos. I would be in, scrub, I would be in scrubs literally coming out of the clinic. And sometimes I'd be late and the team's waiting for me. And I wouldn't even have time to change. The hell with it. I'm in my Chuck Taylor Converse in scrubs and we're getting practice going. You know, and that was what it's all about for me. It was all about, that was the dream. The dream was, you know, coming out of a clinic, doing work, whether it was, you know, three or four surgeries or seeing patients and then uh, playing soccer, football, or playing basketball with the kids after with not a worry in the world, you know, and uh, I jokingly mess with people. They're like, how do you have all this money to go overseas? I'm, you know, I tell people at the hospital sometimes, I'm like, well, you know, I was born into a billionaire royal family, but I disengaged from my parents and this is my taking it to the man, to them. And then they really, you're like secretly a billionaire. No guys, no, it's, it's out of my own money. I, I, I pour a lot of this. Like I, I, I bought an ultrasound for almost $6,000 because I can do regional anesthesia. I put in overtime, I put in time that was out of me. So I can do regional anesthesia because our narcotics are short in some of these countries. I believe in multimodal anesthetics, which are not pushed by just narcotics. And because somebody can have an elbow surgery, a hand surgery, a shoulder surgery, and that can numb them up with local anesthetic and they will not feel pain 
for anywhere between 12 to 18 or 12 to 24 hours, depending on what I give. Really? So you're going upstream on that, that nerve plexus, basically? Yep, exactly. Exactly. Exactly that. And uh, so, yeah. So, and I was very proud. I, I took my ultrasound machine with me and I did, you know, with my team, uh, about 18 nerve blocks for those cases. And man, just the first one, it was all worth it for me. Just the first one, the next day coming in, having this 15 year old kid smile at me, give me a thumbs up and say, can I get a photo with you? Was worth every penny of that. So you pour, I've poured a lot of the heart and soul into it. You know, it's whether it's time or money or look, man, it's, it's no secret. I'm in healthcare and people in healthcare do well. You know, when you take a month off, that's a month off of work that you took off. My student loans don't know a pause. My mortgage doesn't know a pause. You think I can tell a bank, hey, I'm going on this medical mission. Can you pause my expenses? No. So there is a sacrifice that comes with it. But when you see guys like Steve James and you see a lot of the sacrifice they've done for the greater good, this motivates me, man. You know, we did mission number 12 and 13 in the last two months. Had to learn Spanish for that. And then uh, 14 is coming up January 21st. So beautiful. Now, back to his daughter. I mean, you know, that's such a heartbreaking story. Was it an opiate related thing? Was it, did she take her own life or? You know, I, I have, I don't know if he's discussed it, but I've yet to have the courage to ask him. And I've, he's like a brother to me. We like roommate whenever I'm down there. And he's, he is a very young human, you know, in his late sixties, early seventies, he's still trucking, but he feels like a brother and a good friend to me, you know? Uh, but I don't know. I don't know. But I asked the question, I'm like, why are we in this Brittany house? What is this Brittany house? Why is it called Brittany's house? And they're like, oh, that was Steve's daughter that passed away. And I'm like, ah. Not Brittany Spears. No. Yeah. <laughs> Brittany's house. Yeah. So it, it made a little bit more sense. But yeah, man, Ken, Kenny Relief does amazing work, you know, and I've had people say, well, don't you feel like, no, I don't. No, no. Look, at this moment in time, yes. Can I donate money? Cool. But I spent 10 years making these hands worth a lot of money and skill set. And at that point in time, that skill set's a shortage and I can take it anywhere I go. So, you know, this is a good organization. Have we poured billions into Africa and it's gone nowhere? Yeah, of course. Look at Haiti. Billions. Yeah. Where is it? Who knows? It's spiraling yeah. downward at the moment from what I've seen. Of course, man. But, uh, you, you know, but I can, I can decipher. I can decipher between the two. I can tell you, you know which which orgs that i've seen personally you know um that are doing incredible work so and this is one of them absolutely so beautiful well well shifting geographically a little bit another fascinating place that you spent time on as a rescue boat um you know there's now we've finished our involvement publicly, at least in Iraq and in Afghanistan. It's kind of like, well, that, that chapter's closed. Now we've got this new enemy, which is the entire country of Russia, which isn't our new enemy. It's these extremists or these people that are being lied to in Russia that are fighting this this war at the moment. Um, but, you know, Syria and some of these other places are still decimated and people are still fleeing. So talk to me about your work on the boat. Oh man, um, I had watched this music video by an artist by the name of Low Key. And that music video was titled Ahmed, 
A-H-M-E-D. And it said, did Ahmed not deserve a life? Did Ahmed not, did Ahmed deserve to die? Ahmed never knew the politicians he was murdered by. That's literally how it starts. It's a very political video. When I watched it, it was years ago. And I, and I was put on by this rapper by the name of Loki, who was dubbed by another very famous rapper. That rapper said, Loki is the greatest rapper in the UK. And I thought, who is this guy? Let me look him up. Boom. What's this music video? Ahmed. The majority of the footage that I saw in this music video were people drowning in the sea. At that point, I was doing work in refugee camps on land, and I thought that wasn't good enough. So I went back, trained. Obviously, I worked, you know, we can go back to that, but I worked pre-hospital, helicopter, ambulance. I've intubated people on both. I've intubated people in ERs, ORs, ICUs, ambulances, helicopters, the grounds, any place you can think of. So I decided to reach out to this group by the name of Mokara, and it was Gaelic, and that means my friend in Gaelic. And uh, it was just this rescue boat, rescue team, and, um, you know, they were working the coasts of Lesbos Island in Greece. And uh, initially I had to impress them. They're like, do you, can you? So I said, just send me your medical protocols. I wrote their medical protocols before even showing up. And they earned, there was a, a lad from the UK who was like, all right, man, you've, he's like, can you swim? I'm like, I'm a pretty strong swimmer, but you brought me in to be a medic on a boat. I do speak Arabic. You expect me to swim and I know how to drive a boat. That's four hats I can wear in one. You typically have a translator that can't do the other three or a swimmer that can't do the other three or a medic that doesn't even want to be in the water. And I can do them. He's like, all right, come on for two weeks. Let's see how you are. And sure enough, man, um, went on. Uh, we covered about 40 nautical miles off the coast of Greece. We were not in Turkish waters. In, in, that, in those waters, there were the Italian, Portuguese, Turkish, Greek, Croatian coast guards. So it was a very, very like sensitive area, right? Uh, we had a small, very fast boat. So oftentimes the coast guards would deploy us especially if they had some of the larger vessels and they didn't want to take a chance when some of the boats were stuck on rocks, where the people were stuck on rocks, it was easy for us to go. So what would happen is literally we would get our boats as close as possible. One of us would jump out, swim. We would trim our engines up and then pull the boat in. Um, had to do that a couple of times. And then uh, we've had to take care of a lot of hypothermia patients, have to take care of a lot of chest pain patients, a lot of trauma patients from their travels, some drowning. And the one that I will never forget was hearing from a young mother and father talk about their daughter saying that the sea swallowed their daughter. And for seven hours, every single one of those Coast Guard groups that I named, including our team, was looking for her. But how? Come on, you're seven years old. You know, how are you going to withstand Mediterranean Sea when you have waves? And, and we're talking about in the winter, man. It's cold. It's cold. So, I mean, we all had on dry suit. We all had on very, very, very thick 
dry suits. Um, and, you know, you see that and you see the other argument, like, well, we can't let them in. Well, look, if somebody decimated my neighborhood and I have three kids and they're decimating every neighborhood around me, I'm going to escape. And if I hear this other area where other people have gone and made a new life, I'm going to try to get there too. But the problem is they would pay these smugglers almost $1,000 a head. These smugglers would put them in these dinghy boats that are meant for 20 people. Now they're carrying 50 people with a single engine with fake life vests. They don't give them life vests. They give them these blow up things that you have to blow up that you put your kid in a small three foot pool so they can float in. That's what they give them. So then what? What happens when they hit rock and they don't know where they're going? That's how a lot of this happens. So I did three tours with this team, ultimately. 2018, 2019, and 2020. Each one was about a month. And uh, now uh, a German team, again, I don't, there's, there's another team that I need to email. They've reached out to me looking for some healthcare providers and there's some dates that are provided for me and I just need to figure out what month I can go. It's a German NGO. Look, I get it. I get the border aspect of things. You know, we can't just let people in. You know, Greece was severely in a financial distress compared to other European countries. So how can you handle another 50,000 people? I 100% understand that argument. The other argument is I cannot sit there and watch a mother or children die in the sea and not do anything about it, knowing that these politicians put them there. You know? So that was a hard, that was a hard thing for me. It was very hard, man. I'll, and people are people are people. I'll never forget one of the more touching scenes was this woman was shaking and shivering and her socks were wet. And I saw a Greek journalist take off his shoes and take off his socks to give them to her. You know, I'll never forget. There was a Greek, we dubbed her the grandmother who would make soup for every single incoming boat coming in. Humanity, man. I've seen the best and worst of it. You know, um, I'll never forget seeing somebody who looked just like my dad, identical, waiting in line with one bag because that was literally all his life's belongings, getting ready to go from one refugee camp to another. I mean, I'm getting goosebumps telling you this. How do you shake these stories? Uh, you know, I'll never forget the kid that I took to Switzerland from Greece, who I found out later passed away and how much it broke me, you know, so compassion hurts, man. You know, Andrew Boyd said it, compassion hurts when you feel connected to everything, you know, when you feel strongly about everything, you feel connected to it and, um, and you cannot turn away. Your destiny is bound by the destiny of others. Uh, you must learn to carry the world or be crushed by it. You must grow strong enough to love the universe and the world, yet empty enough to sit at a table with its worst horrors. So when people ask me, uh, you know, oh, you're so strong, you're so strong. I almost think I'm, no, I'm a little empty on the inside because I've sat at that table with the worst horrors. I've seen illness, death, poverty, homelessness, post-war, 
Man, I had a guy in an echo camp when I was there in 2016, when I was the only one for 3000 people screaming in the middle of the night. Now there's about 400 people. This guy had a pipe bomb blow up. I don't know if he was a vegetable selling cucumbers or something. He's had seven vascular surgeries in severe pain. Sometimes I feel a pulse. Sometimes I don't. Couldn't do anything for this man, but hug him. And everybody's like, take him to the hospital. And I'm like, the nearest one's two hours away. They're not going to do anything for him. You know? So again, man, the best and the worst of humanity. You know, uh, does this man not deserve to get out of this refugee camp and seek healthcare in some of our more advanced uh, healthcare countries in Europe, like your Sweden, Norway, Finland, Germany, Holland, UK, and so on. So, yeah, it's hard, but you know, can we keep things open for people to come in and out? No, too, because we obviously have issues with that. We have issues in our Southern border, right? You know, we have the cartel at any moment in time trying to sneak in anything they can. So, and trying to take advantage of these innocent people going in. So that was the fine line, man. So, you know, working in these waters was tough for me, tough physically, tough emotionally, tough mentally. Um, we were on call. I remember, I remember getting a call every single day, not sleeping at night. You can't even see your hand when you're out on this boat at night, let alone to put an IV in somebody in your headline, you know? So, yeah, man, just, uh, that's crazy. Cause yeah, before that, no, we didn't. And I ended up meeting, uh, this, this artist low key. He ended up, uh, I was in, I was in, I was in the UK. I was in London and I met up with a friend who knew him. He was an artist with him. And he was like, Hey man, I need you to watch this guy's Ted talk. And he watched, he's like, Oh, I got a lot of respect for him. He's in London. Do you want to meet up with him? Ended up meeting up with him. And, uh, He's like, why do you do it? I said, man, it was your video, your video that I watched years ago. It's got millions of views now. I said, your video that I watched years ago. And we, we're still connected. So it's crazy how that circle ended up tying into place, right? Uh, but yeah, man, that that's, I tell myself I don't want to do it anymore. But the moment I got this email and now I'm thinking about it again, you know, I'm thinking about hitting back training, getting back into the pool. And just uh, training. I'm, I think I'm in great shape. I'm, you know, I'm a climber and I, I keep up, but that's a different kind of cardio. And, uh, you know, getting back into that, not that they'll require me to jump in the water. I have before. I've done it on numerous occasions. There's a photo of me taking out a baby, maybe two months old. Had no idea it was circulating. So I saw this post on Instagram with 2 million likes. And then finally, I'm like, okay, I'm going to post this now. Like, this is literally a photo of me carrying this baby out. So I've gotten into the water before, but obviously I'd, I'd like to leave that to the experts and, you know, not be shivering as I'm trying to get an IV in somebody because <laughs> that's, or, you know, be fully mentally with you. You get what I'm saying? So, so we'll see there, there's something on that end, but I think three was enough for me, you know, and then obviously 2020, I had to focus on COVID. It wasn't like I just let off. It was like one thing after another, after another. You know, I think when you talked to me, it was after I had led that team in Lebanon, or maybe not. I was on my way to go to Lebanon, actually. I don't know if I, I took, we saw a thousand people in that week. I was so exhausted. I told the ladies, we pit stopped. It was from Beirut to Qatar. I told them, don't wake me up. It was a 15 hour flight. I don't know how to sleep on planes. 
I said, don't wake me up for food. I knocked out from the moment that flight got up because I slept maybe a total of 10 hours that week. You know, um, we, yeah, we saw about a thousand people. So yeah, man, it's been, it's been, it's been a minute since we've really truly dove into this. Absolutely. Well, and then if people listen to 131, they'll hear all the stuff that you've done up to that point as well, which is, you know, absolutely worth to listen to. I want to hit one more area before we wrap up. People listening to this, you've obviously got your quote unquote day job where you're, you know, working as anesthesia and there's many successes and some losses in that realm too. You've got all these different areas where even though you're using those, you know, experienced hands now, the, a lot of the framework that you're working under doesn't allow you to do the things that you can do for maybe in, in Chicago, for example. What has been your mental health journey through this? And what tools are you using to try and offset this continuous trauma and jet lag and sleep deprivation and, you know, organizational betrayal and all these other things that, that constantly attack us in our psyche? Uh, well, you know, two things. Going back into modeling helps the mental, emotional aspect of, of the pressure. But to answer you, it's truly physical exercise has been my saving grace. I cannot tell you, man. I mean, you know, martial arts, taekwondo, jujitsu. I've always been active running, um, but now, now as a climber, because I can do it both outdoor and indoor, uh, I'm working every aspect of my body. That, that's been so good to me. I think also taking time away um, has been good to me and not away in that sense. I'm a painter. Uh, I like to write and that's also kind of been really good for uh, my psyche. I'm looking at one of the paintings I've been working on for some time and some of the other ones around my house. And that's really helped me. Is and that then yours just behind about, you? This one is not, I okay. wish. Oh, that one's really yeah. good. The other ones are probably yeah. shit. Yeah, this one. <laughs> that's mine. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Oil too. Currently still in the process, but... For people listening, uh, it's beautiful. All right, carry yeah, yeah. on. <laughs> Thanks, I was thinking about, you know, for a second, I was thinking about just putting it up for auction. and But I thought, no, I, I need this for me. And that's where I'm going to go into this map, taking time for me. Being something that I don't, and I'm not usually selfish. Taking time for me, doing things for me, making sure that I'm taking care of me first. Um, the burden on us has been so great. And I didn't know how to take time for myself, man. You know, realizing now saying no more, which is really tough. Um, but definitely painting, writing, climbing, and then talking to people, especially people that understand it has been truly, truly helpful. Uh, again, I go back to changing my diet too. You know, that's helped a lot, especially with the sugar aspect, not feeling that kind of the ups and downs that sugar tend to bring someone. So going back into modeling too, I mean, I, it's, it, it's, it's a stressful job nonetheless, but it's less stressful than, you know, coding a patient. If somebody looks at me and they're like, you're too skinny for this, or your hair is too curly for this. Okay. So be it. You're lost. Okay. <laughs> it's not going to stress me out as much, but I think going back into that, which is such a dichotomy, you know, in its own. Um, but that's also helped to kind of a balance. Now, just touching on that quickly, 
I've talked about this before. I did stunts for the longest time. I just uh, kind of got cut, for lack of a better word, from my latest stunt job. I did it very, very infrequently, and they they were trimming the fat, for lack of a better word. But um, I had a time where I was, you know, working as a firefighter paramedic, seeing some horrible things, and then the, you know, the next morning would go and dress up as a pirate or T-1000 and go be a stuntman. And sometimes I was struck by the fact that I just worked with a group of men and women that put other people ahead of themselves. And now I'm next to a prima donna who's queening out because his costume isn't right or, you know, whatever. Do you, have you had any of those moments when you're in this, you know, this, this modeling world where again, someone could argue that, you know, a model maybe at times is, is putting themselves front and center and contrasting that with some of the selfless people that you work alongside on, you know, wearing other hats. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, it's been strange because, you know, I found myself on a Friday giving anesthesia and doing surgery. And, you know, unfortunately that specific patient found out that they had cancer and we were trying to figure that out to Saturday opening up for a runway show in downtown Cincinnati with a thousand people looking at me. And for the most part, the people that I've met have been wonderful because they too are human and they do realize that, you know, this is a job and I'm here to sell a product or put on a product for sale and so on. Um, I'll just never forget after finishing that show, this older gentleman came up to me he said, kid, you, you led this. He was watching from outside. Why aren't you smiling? I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, you know, he's like, I'm not going to buy your clothes. You're not smiling at me. You got to be. Se-. I said, well, they tell us to be serious faced and you got to put on this model face. He's like, well, he's like a smile would help me buy your clothes. He was like in his eighties. And I thought, <laughs> my goodness, man, they really, they really do dictate you know, everything about us. And, you know, you were selling, I booked a gig once because somebody said I had almond shaped eyes. I mean, to, to go from a world where you're taking care of others to a world where you're essentially being, you know, I don't know, looked at as just like a piece of meat more so than anything is very strange, but I also use that to my advantage. You know, I've, I've worked with Duff for Men, which is an international company, you know, Bomba Socks. I just did a photo shoot. I, I forget the name of the magazine, but it's it's in the November magazine somewhere in Europe. You know, and unfortunate, unfortunately, I hate to say this, sex sells, man. Oh, absolutely. You know? I mean, look at every commercial. Turn the turn the volume off. It's basically yeah. a bunch of models dancing, whether it's toilet yeah, paper yeah, or yeah. you know yeah. a car. Yeah, and and you know, I I now have the luxury to say no to certain things that I just don't I don't see a value with, or I have a problem with the company because I do have a, a, a stable place that I can go back to. Unlike quite a few of my friends who rely on that. I mean, I had a friend of mine say to me, I have to decide whether to sell my soul or put food on the table, you know? So or to sell my soul and put food on the table or to not sell my soul and not put food on the table. Yeah. And that's a very well-known actor who's in crash. He was in He's in some big, big films out there. And, uh, you know, because they wanted him to be the gangbanger every time. And his acting range is so broad. No, 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 you're the gangbanger. And he's got to say these lines. He's like, I can do so much more. Did he play a plumber in that particular, or a carpenter, or locksmith? Locksmith in that particular one. 
he he was Ludacris's partner in that particular role in Crash. Okay, all right, so a different one because that's I forget I'm blanking on his name, but he Crash was with Lorenz Tate. It was a series of four different stories. Middle, yeah. Um, yeah, phenomenal, very good. phenomenal. Yeah, um, uh, God, what's her name? Tandy Newton and all those yeah, guys. Yeah, yeah. Brendan Fraser was in it. Yeah, um, among some others. So Matt Dillon uh, was the Matt seemingly Dillon. corrupt cop, but then there was that it ended up saving exactly. Yeah, yeah. beautiful. So, I mean, actually, the book I'm writing now has an element of that to it. I love how they start with the end and then you reverse engineer all the characters. Yeah. So it was him. It was him. So, you know, you, you, you kind of see this and, you know, I am going back into it full throttle, actually, you know, um, uh, I've reduced my shifts in the hospital to six days a month and it's time to take this on, man, because there is a power to one of my friends, this is going to sound so crazy. They said, do you really think you have all this following just from the work that you do? And I, I'm not oblivious to it, obviously. I mean, yes, uh, I grew up not having attention. So it was something that I had to learn. And until this day, I don't walk around like I have. Until this day, when people are like, what's your Instagram or what's this? I, I try not to. Here's my phone number. Let's do this the old school way. Um, but there is an aspect to that. And I think, man, maybe one day if I do book a big gig where it gets me out there, maybe some print will run something on me. Hey, this, is, this guy was doing this, but now he's in the middle of Africa or Ecuador doing this work and potentially highlight that work. There is potential to it, but it's, it's so subconscious, man. It's everywhere. It's your car. It's yourself. The guy holding a cell phone at your billboard. People, my mom thinks that I'm just going to be in a half naked with a beautiful woman <coughs> taking photos. I'm like, mom, that's not how this really works. Like, you know, you look around you, it's everywhere. It's your H and M it's this, it's just, I have a broad range. So once I really get back into it, sports, outdoors, luxury cars, suits, watches, you know, all these things I have a potential for. And I say to myself, why not? You know, on one end, I put on a Spider-Man suit and go to sick children in the hospital and no one knows who I am. And I jump around and do that. On one end, I put on my other suit, my scrubs as firefighters, police officers, sheriffs, cooks, truck drivers, people that work in our grocery stores who are heroes, put on their, their attire, you know, as well. And, and we just all do it in a different way, you know? Um, so that, that's, that's that on that end, man. I, I mean, I, who knows, you know, it might, we'll, we'll see where it goes. We'll see where it goes in January um, where I really kind of I had a small agency. We kind of parted ways because um, they didn't like that. I was so busy in the hospital. So now I'm re-upping again and, you know, putting out to multiple agencies and one of them will say yes and uh, we'll go from there. So we'll see. Beautiful. Well, I, I actually put all my headshots out around London after I came out of drama school. And the only reason that I didn't break out into the modeling industry is because I've got a face like a smacked ass. So podcasting was really the best fit for that. <laughs> no, <laughs> but my wife loves it and that's okay. But she tells me yeah. she loves me from the ankles up so I could never be a sock model either. I have uh, <laughs> the feet of Tutankhamun. Um, yeah, <laughs> all right. Well, I want to make sure that we talk about where people can find if they want to help towards the Kenyan hospital before I let you go. So where's the best place for people donate if they listen to this and they want to contribute? Uh, obviously, they can find their way on my Instagram. The link is on there. Um, 
you know, I've talked about it and uh, you can obviously share my Instagram is J D as in dog period. And then M O H A. And that's M as in Michael O H A. So J D period Moha. And uh, you know, they can just find it on the link. They don't have to follow me. They don't have to do any, I can care less. Just click. If, if you can't donate, I, I had, I had somebody message me and they said, I couldn't donate. I shared it with a friend who shared it with a friend and that father donated 500. The power of just putting it out there is more power. I would much rather somebody share it than donate, to be honest. Like somebody's going to give $5, $3, $2, by all means, that's great. But if you can share it with your community of 200, 300, and then that, that creates that ripple effect, that, that's all I can ask for, truly. So yeah, man. Blessed, brother. Blessed. Very blessed to to have known you, man. I'm I'm to, to have this connection. You are so overdue to come to Chicago, man. You told me you were coming. You gotta come. I would wait now. It's getting cold. Um, but I would definitely come in. Man, I'll host you, man. I have an extra room. Just come through. You don't have to don't, don't worry about a hotel. I live in the heart of the city. I'm 10 minutes off of downtown, but I'm in a quiet neighborhood. There's parking if you want to rent a car and keep it out. Um, you can go wherever, try all these foods, see the people that, you know, you know, I'm not by any means holding you. You can come and go whenever you want. You'll have a key. So come. Beautiful. I will take you up on that. I've got to go around the world with a bunch of crazy special operations people on a big kind of mission. You you mentioned that to me a year ago. We, we almost spoke a year ago, Yeah, maybe eight months ago. Yep. That was probably right when it first kicked off. So they, I think we, they jump out of the plane in Antarctica on February 18th, I think, um, or 16th, maybe it's 16th. But anyway, they'll be in London, which is obviously the one that I'm focused on getting everyone riled up for, I think, on the 22nd. So I've got to go and check those dates. But anyway, middle of, middle of February is when it's all going to go down, and it's, it's going to be amazing. But after that, that's obviously been a big... Big thing. I've gone all in with, with these guys for this. But then after that, I would love to come Remind to Chicago. Remind me of it again. I remember of it, but I don't remember the details exactly. So it's called the Human Performance Project. The little round the world thing is called 7X. Um, so very long story, very short. They are preparing these athletes who are all special operations men in this particular case. We've got some of the greatest minds in nutrition and you know strength and conditioning and physical therapy. Um, getting is them ready. Is on there? No, no, Wim isn't. Actually, I had him on the show, but he's not involved in this particular one. Yeah. Um. But so they're gonna they're gonna skydive and or base jump, then run a marathon, and then do a swim in seven continents in seven days. So each of those three things. So we basically do all that, get on the plane, go to the next continent. Um. And it's gonna be phenomenal. But then the real takeaway is that's gonna break them down. The 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 big mission is to then study well how do we put these people back together again physically mentally to so we mirror you know a 9-11 uh you know deployment in afghanistan whatever it was so that we can figure out the mental health and physical health cost of a career how we can make them resilient in the build-up and how we can reboot them after that's going to become a manual and a docu-series the docu-series obviously will be you know available to anyone that has netflix or whoever picks it up and then the manual can be bought by any agency military force responder etc 
for their people and the money from all of those go back into Ryan's nonprofit and the other nonprofits that we selected around the world. So it's this amazing, you know, um, synchronistic, synchronistic kind of relationship between getting all these eyeballs and talking about these causes, but also giving them an actual how to at the end of it and supporting these nonprofits. So it's beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. That's incredible, man. How'd you get into that or hear about it? Um, Sons of the Flag uh, is Ryan's wow. original one. There's actually Dana Ali, who we're mutual friends, aren't we? Dana yeah, was the one that introduced yeah, yeah, me to she's, you, I believe. She's, she's been to my home. She's eating dinner at my parents. She's, uh, she's now a, a chief. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So she, I'll give her credit for, you know, for us meeting each other through her, um she also introduced me to ryan um she was an ambassador for his uh his nonprofit. i think she was the north carolina rep if i'm not mistaken um so that was it and then that that, yeah yeah, it was amazing so that that was an interview that grew into a friendship that grew into to this so phenomenal and as you said there are amazing human beings and we need to hear those stories and it's been hard to get him on some of these big shows to tell this story because as you said, sex sells, violence sells, you know, conflict sells. But some of these amazing humans that are doing things like this all around the world, you know, it's it's actually you would think people will be scrambling to tell their story, but just like your law enforcement friends, that's not always the case. So I'm hoping that, you know, when this actually happens, people will be like, Wait, what is this? And then they'll really yeah. be looking at it. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. Well, mate, I I just want to say thank you so much. Um, thank you again for everything that you've done. You could literally be resting on your laurels and doing anesthesiology and making lots of money, but you're doing so much more in the world. And as I said at the beginning, you're very humble with it, which is why I love this conversation to share what you're doing and your perspective, whether it's COVID, whether it's being you know a resident of Chicago or whether it's working on a on a rescue boat, you know, on the edge of the Middle East and helping those people. So thank you so much for coming on again and sharing all your stories. Always, brother. Anytime and always for you, man. Thank you. Thank you.